0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Republicans have opened another front in the culture war with the slogan, Parental Rights. They're talking about banning not just the teaching of critical race theory, whatever that is, now they're campaigning to ban comprehensive sex education, which is designed to protect children from exploitation and abuse. Joan Walsh will explain. But first, the hearings of the January 6th committee continued this week. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. Well, we're speaking Thursday, just after the conclusion of the hearing. Today's focus was Trump's efforts to pressure the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, to pursue false claims of election fraud and yes. how top justice officials threatened to resign in protest at a dramatic, dramatic Oval Office meeting if Trump fired Rosen and appointed this other guy, Jeff Clark, Uh, What did you think of today's hearing? It was stunning. I mean, uh, look, uh, I
1: had reasonably high expectations for these hearings uh, before they started. So far, every one of the hearings has been way better. And I just mean in, in both production and the revelations than I had expected. But this one, which I was a little bit dubious about, Uh, For a couple of reasons, because so many of these people had been kind of uh, career insiders at the Department of Justice who had worked pretty closely with Trump. I I wondered, you know, how how much they would reveal themselves, how, you know, they would whether they could get out of their cloaks as lawyers and actually, you know, speak some real blunt truth to power. Um, They did. This was astounding. Um, I was powerfully struck by. The detailed conversation about uh, Trump's desire to seize the voting machines. And you have to understand that's the, in the context of a sitting president or sitting prime minister, someone like that, who has lost an election demanding that the voting machines be seized and then coming back to it again and again as yeah. a central premise of his response. That's coup talk. I mean, that's like, that's classic coup talk. Um, and so it's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah to me the most uh, the most chilling uh, moment came when they showed the when the committee showed the White House call logs that referred to this other guy Jeff Clark this sort of unknown environmental lawyer in the Justice Department as acting attorney general on January 3rd in the afternoon that was before the evening meeting where the rest of them all threatened to resign so it, it seems like Trump already had decided to appoint a new attorney general, which would have been like the third in one month, uh, to get somebody to say that, that the uh, election results were fraudulent. Uh, and uh, it was only because of the ma- threat of mass resignation by virtually all of the acting Uh, uh, by uh, virtually all of the acting assistant attorney generals as well as the acting AG himself and White House attorney Pat Cipollone calling this a murder-suicide pact that persuaded Mm -hmm. Trump uh, to apparently reverse the decision he'd already made. Really shocking.
1: It was stunning. And then one other aspect of that meeting that came out was um, apparently the thing that may have convinced Trump was a line from one of the people in the meeting who said, um, if Clark comes in, he will be presiding over a graveyard. Yeah. I E there'll be no one there that meeting. I mean, just the descriptions of it are absolutely incredible. I mean, the notion of all of these top lawyers kind of called into this star chamber situation. Um, and, uh, finally, you know, one lawyer who wasn't there being called in, um, and, uh, and he tries to take a seat on a couch, right? One of the key players, and Trump says, "No, no, no, no. You come up here." And they get a chair and put a chair directly opposite Trump, so that I think it is Rosen. Yeah, um, has to sit looking straight at Trump and be questioned by him. You know, um, it, everything about this has the feel of again. I mean, I, I don't want to be over dramatic here, but the sort of descriptions you get of a coup situation, right? Where, you know, like people are called into rooms, being told that they no longer have their jobs. And then, you know, kind of decisions being reversed and the bizarre thing where then Rosen is told, yeah, you're going to you're gonna stay, right? Or we're going to keep you in your position. And what are you going to do with this guy? And they point to Clark who's in the room, yeah. you know? And I mean, it's just, it's, it's got a very sort of dark, uh, kind of haunting character to it. And so overall, it was a pretty remarkable set of hearings. There were a couple other revelations because I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but there are a couple other things that, that came out that were quite remarkable. And one of the things that really struck, uh, or you know, kind of you know, stuck in my mind through the whole thing, was the remarkable line where Trump was trying to get some of the top people in the Justice Department, as well as apparently people in other departments, to look at a bizarre claim. Out of Italy. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at some point, Trump says something along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, I don't think you guys follow the internet the way I do. <laughs> That's for sure.
0: That's for sure.
1: And I don't know it's bizarre. Of course.
0: This is let but- me just explain in case people have forgotten this one. This is the <laughs> internet theory that Italian satellites were switching votes from Trump to Biden and that this was reported on the internet so there must be something to it. That's there you have it, right? And um no, and this goes that, up to the president to the president of the United States is demanding that the justice department the department of homeland security you know get to the bottom of this of, of this report. Well, and 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 when key
1: players are saying, "Yeah, I took 20 minutes" of, you know, you think somebody in a very powerful position, a very critical time. I took 20 minutes. I watched the video. It was garbage. I told yeah. the president this. Yeah. And then the president goes to other people trying to get them to, you know, keeps bouncing around, trying to find somebody to do it. So that was another, I, I think it's just a striking insight into Trump. And then one final thing I'll mention, and this came right toward the end of the hearing. And, but I do think it's, it was incredibly compelling and I'm intrigued that they sort of saved it for this moment. Um, because we got a list of the members of Congress who were asking for pardons. Yeah. And, um, and there was at least five. I, when I was listening, I heard the names of at least five members led by Matt Gaetz, um, who, by all accounts, surely needs a pardon. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there was also um, two or three others who the people who were talking said, yeah, I think, like, for instance, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene was talking to somebody else about it. And Jim Jordan brought this issue up. Um, then you had, you know. Yeah, you
0: had Mo. I, I wrote them down. Mo, Mo Brooks, yep. Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Louis Gomert, Scott Perry all were testified to on firsthand grounds. And Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, talked to somebody else. So we know those those six for sure. Yeah, those are. Those are the
1: ones. And then there was a reference to Jim Jordan as well, um, having brought up. So anyways, uh, it's that's a pretty remarkable thing, because the notion that you've got members of Congress asking for pardon, some of them asking as far back as early December. Right. Long, long before the actual January 6th. It's it's incredibly powerful evidence that people knew they were doing bad stuff. Right. Yeah. They knew they were engaged in something that was wrong. And also an intriguing thing about sort of Trump's, for lack of a better term, the spell he casts over the people around him. Um, they knew it was wrong. And they also, because they're asking for pardons, almost certainly knew it wasn't gonna work. And yet they were still highly participating, you know, very much participating in the whole process. And so it's just, I thought it was a fascinating sort of final insight from the day.
0: Yeah, and then there was this other uh, report from outside the hearings that uh there was a pre-dawn raid by the FBI on the home of Jeff Clark looking for evidence of crimes. Um yep. they as the the commentators on on TV noted, you don't get a warrant to search someone's house without a judge finding uh, cause that the pro- premises are likely to contain evidence of, of criminal activity. So uh, this shows that the, the current Justice Department is preparing its own criminal prosecutions, apparently, uh, including uh, Jeff Clark. Potentially.
1: I mean, technically, Jeff Clark could be uh, uh, could be in some way knowledgeable about a crime as opposed to being the, the direct participant. We, you know, we'll learn Correct. things as it goes on. Correct. But, but yeah, in that circle, and I think, and again, I want to be careful about this because there's a lot we don't know and we want to be as accurate as we can because so much keeps coming out. But I think this may well relate to the fake elector stuff, um, uh-huh. which it sounds like the Department of Justice is starting to take that very, very seriously. And that is, by the way, you know, it's it's classic crime. It is a it is a crime. This is, you know, swearing a false oath, producing false documents with the purpose of, you know, in some way or another, uh, defrauding or falsifying information that the federal government has with the purpose of overturning an election. That's pretty big deal stuff. Yeah. And if that's where the Department of Justice is going and Clark is engaged in that, then think about this. The guy that Trump wanted to be the Attorney General of the United States, or at least the acting Attorney General of the United States, was deeply
0: woven into this conspiracy. Um, Pretty remarkable. And correct me if if I'm wrong, but weren't today's witnesses all Trump appointees? Jeff Rosen took over from the previous two that Trump had fired um, because Trump considered him to be a loyalist. Right. I mean, well, this is the fascinating
1: thing about Trump and what we're what we're learning more and more. And I think these hearings are absolutely incredible in this regard. They are highly significant, is that you're sort of seeing the point at which people spin off. Right. (laughs) Where people are willing to be uh, to do remarkable things, incredibly troublesome things, um, because it puts them close to power or it gives them an opportunity to do something they've always wanted to do, whatever the, the rationale. But then for most of them, there comes a point where they step back and say, you know, I just can't be a part of this. Yeah. And we're finding some very, very right-wing people. One thing that's clear now is that I think the committee is probably going to have to call Ken Cuccinelli from over at uh, DHS because his name came up again and again and again as yeah. somebody that the president was reaching out to, dealing with. and and so. We, we're going to find out a lot more about a lot of folks, but one of the fascinating things here is then you have to stop and ask yourself, well, who didn't pull out, right? Who yeah. didn't reject this? Yeah. And you do end up with Rudy Giuliani.
0: Yes, you do. Uh,
1: whose name came up, you know, more than once uh, today? It has throughout this whole thing.
0: And uh, you, you mentioned the the. Evidence from Tuesday's hearing uh, about uh, getting of uh, the fake electors. Let's just talk about Tuesday's hearing uh, for a oh, minute. Yeah. That was also dynamite, I thought, where the panel laid out how Trump and his people tried to get state legislatures to throw out the results in their states, certify new slates of electoral voters for Trump. Uh, all kinds of pressure was brought on, st- on the key st- legislators in the swing states. They all refused when that didn't work. Uh, the Trump people urged them to state politicians to create false slates of Trump electors that yep. could be submitted to Congress. And indeed, we we learned something I did not know that Ron Johnson, Wisconsin senator, personally asked a, a staff member of his personally asked to deliver two slates from from Wisconsin and Michigan of fake Trump electors to Vice President Mike Pence on january 6th in the senate chambers and pence refused to accept them ron johnson i believe is your senator he sure is and
1: of course myers perked up at that moment because you said something you didn't know that's something no one in wisconsin nobody had heard that that storyline all right and seeing those texts now the one thing that's important to point out is that a lot of the reporting on this has suggested that an aid to johnson wanted to deliver the document. Yeah. If you read the actual text, what it says is Johnson wants to give Pence something today, right? Well, what this is suggesting is that Ron Johnson was going to go to the floor of the United States Senate and at, during, or or slightly before the certification of results, Johnson potentially, we don't know every detail here, but if we follow this storyline, intended to give the vice president lists of alternative electors. I think you have to call Johnson, as well as his staffers now, to clarify what exactly was going on there and who they had spoken to. Why did they feel it was important at this critical point, to put in Mike Pence's hands alternative lists of electors. This is a lot more than just, you know, symbolically protesting by picking alternative electors or, you know, all the the claims they make. This looks like you're getting right into the thick of the thing. And somebody having an idea, whether it's Johnson himself or whether he's claiming he doesn't know anything about anything, but somebody was thinking here about having fake electors, these alternative slates. Handed to the vice president at the critical point. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, again, your jaw drops because you're yeah. really talking about the the kind of full character and you know, kind of real granular detail of a Kuwaitja.
0: Well, we hear the birds chirping behind you, and I think it's they add to the <laughs> I these. apologize. I no, had to It's wonderful. Of the it's well. wonderful. It shows, it shows just how great everything is going. I, I, I know we've only on. got you for a couple more minutes here. I just want to give credit to Kevin McCarthy for boycotting the committee and refusing to appoint any Trump defenders. I understand Trump himself yesterday started complaining about that, saying, quote, it was a bad decision not to have representation on Uh that committee, close quote. I wonder if you agree with Trump on this. I I do.
1: (laughs) Come on. This is, I mean, I don't, look, you you have two hats that you put on here. Uh, First hat is you know, from a pure production standpoint, no, I'm glad there's the, the Republicans aren't there because uh, these hearings or I should say the, the Republicans who would try to interrupt or disrupt aren't there because these hearings really are creating an incredibly powerful narrative flow. Yeah. And um, and and obviously, if you had that the kind of standard back and forth and pontificating and filibustering, it wouldn't be as effective by the same token, in fairness to to any process. Um, We have a two party system. Having people who disagree and challenge and push and prod um, creates a dialectic that ultimately, I think, is is usually to the good. And so I think in this case, Trump is probably right that the Republicans made a terrible error in not putting uh, some credible dissident members. And they've got dozens of people they could have put on this committee. That wouldn't have been a problem at all. Now, the question, though, and this is the one you'll appreciate, John, is, did Trump tell McCarthy not to put people on? (laughs) (laughs) And I think there's
0: a a really good
1: possibility that
0: that's the case. One last thing. According to the most recent polling, 58% of all Americans think Trump should be indicted for his crimes. And I was amazed to see this includes 20% of Republican registered voters think Trump should be uh, indicted. What do you make of all that?
1: I think that these hearings, so dismissed by Republicans, um, and even in some cases uh, the subject of some skepticism on the part of Democrats, have turned out to be incredibly effective at making the case that uh, Chairman Benny Thompson made at the start which was this was an attempted coup and Trump was at the center of the conspiracy. I think that's starting to resonate with more and more people. And, uh, and it's not surprising that one fifth of Republicans would say that because if we look at the data, there's probably about one fifth of Republicans at this point who are willing to object to or see through Trump uh, on, on a variety of issues and then more as you go along, but there's that sort of baseline. And so um I think these hearings are sort of really hitting their mark. They're getting exactly to the point that, you know, you would have wanted them to get to if you were scoping this thing out, you know, months ago, trying to figure out how this would go. And frankly, John, that's the, that's the end, right? That's the the end game is to uh, get to the recommendations that this committee is going to make. Those recommendations have to be strong. They have to be powerful. They have to have a point. And we are, starting to see more and more evidence that if the committee recommends the indictment and prosecution of Donald Trump for crimes against the republic, um, that that would be a popular move. And I hate to tell you that while there's a lot of talk about doing the right thing and nobility and honor and duty, many politicians do incline toward the popular. And so uh, I think we're, we're, in a, we're in a very interesting and perhaps very good trajectory with these hearings.
0: John Nichols. John Nichols. Read him at the nation.com. Thank you, John.
1: Thanks, brother. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Same old story back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener. Talking about politics, thinking about the left. Republicans have opened another front in the culture war with the slogan parental rights, not just banning the teaching of critical race theory, whatever that is, but now they're campaigning to ban comprehensive sex education. With Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis in the lead, Florida adopted what they called a Parental Rights in Education Bill, which places restrictions on teaching or even mentioning sexual orientation and gender identity, especially in grades K-3. to We call it the Don't Say Gay Bill. And it's not just Florida. Joan Walsh has been covering the grassroots activities of this new movement. Joan, of course, is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation. She's been an on-air political analyst at CNN and MSNBC, and she produced the wonderful 2020 documentary, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We talked about it here. She's also a former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back.
2: Thanks for having me, John.
0: Well, for starters, what is comprehensive sex education? How is it different from the old-time sex ed we are familiar with?
2: It's hard to say that there's one definition, which is part of the problem, but in general, what it adds to what even, you know, older folks like me got. We you know, we got like a a film, the boys and the girls were separated, we got some basic anatomy and basic birds and the bees. What this movement has gradually added with the onset of the AIDS crisis, it added a lot of attention to condoms, contraception, just sexual safety. And and in recent years, it's added attention to LGBTQ issues, as well as, and this is the part that really bothers me about the movement against it, as well as even in the early grades, information about what constitutes abuse what you should say no to what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable what to tell adults about and so they've taken this concept that was actually designed to protect children in many ways and twisted it uh into something that is supposedly hurting children and that's what galls me the most i would have to say
0: One of the grassroots campaigns you report on is in Worcester, Mass, where some school board candidates ran under the slogan, opt out of pornographic sex education. Tell us about that.
2: Well, there's a movement there, and uh, a woman, a mother uh, by the name of Chanel Susie, decided to run for school committee and, and make this movement part of her platform, central to her platform. What happens, John, is that people take suggested curriculum ideas or resources uh, and twist something that even liberal parents might raise their eyebrows at uh, into something that's mandated, they depict it all as pornography, they depict it all as sexualizing children. And that's what happened in Worcester. And this w- woman who has a very interesting and, and pretty hard life, who was a teen mom herself, who seems like she would support comprehensive sex ed, she lost, but her crusade goes on. And what they're doing is trying to get Worcester parents to quote, opt out, because you can, I mean, in pretty much every place I'm aware of. Parents can opt out. You know, your kids get sent home a a message. We're we're doing this kind of sex ed. If you want to take them out, you can take them out. They moved the number of Worcester families opting out from eight to about 3,400, and it's still rising. So that's, you know, that's her definition of victory right now, even though her actual campaign, you know, ended in failure.
0: And you report that at least 30 places around the country are considering legislation that would limit LGBT representation in the curriculum and put limits on school clubs. Uh, How much of this is genuinely local and homegrown? And how much is coming from the right-wing organizations and foundations that we know about?
2: That we know and love. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's really hard to say. I would never say that there is not genuine parental discomfort uh, with some of these changes. And sometimes they are not publicized or or explained well enough. Let's let's allow for that. But there's also an unbelievable crusade by, you know, our old friends at the Heritage Foundation, the Dick and Betsy DeVos Foundation, uh, focus on the family, Family Research Council, et cetera, et cetera, to sort of turn their old preoccupation with especially gay rights um, and gay marriage into this new concern for sexualizing children. Uh, grooming children. It's, it's huge. It's hugely funded. It, Massachusetts has, uh, Worcester even, but Massachusetts has a, not grassroots, but, a, a you know, astroturfed uh, a family alliance that fought sex ed. Um, Worcester has a, a chapter of it. Um, this is going on all over the country. And if you go online, there's a stopcse.org. I didn't get into the, these weeds deeply enough, but you'll let me. Um, You go to stopcse.org and you find exactly how to foment a backlash to this kind of curriculum. You find, you know, information that it distorts what's going on, first of all. But then this is how you talk about it. This is what you do. This is how you approach your school board. These are the curriculum uh, ideas you should be promoting. And it's really insidious and it's incredibly well-funded.
0: And In The Nation magazine, you report on some fascinating research about what we have found about the effects and the consequences of this new comprehensive sex education.
2: It's much more effective than the old abstinence only, even in promoting abstinence in some cases. I mean, there are many, many respected studies that show it postpones the age at which teenagers, whatever we want to call them, commence sexual behavior, if that's something you're concerned about. It lowers rates of teen pregnancy. It lowers rates of sexually transmitted diseases. And there's also, because this curriculum is relatively new, the the research is not quite as robust, but the research that exists shows that it helps kids avoid bullying, avoid sexual abuse, that the the lessons surrounding bodily autonomy and and sexual harm uh, and ideas of consent, whether you're a young man or a young woman, These are also taking root, and these are also helping straight kids and and kids that you don't necessarily think are at risk for these things. So it's really perverse, the insistence on abstinence only, because it's not effective and a more comprehensive approach really is.
0: You write in The Nation about a lesson plan called Pink, Blue, and Purple that has become a target. Tell us about pink, blue, and purple?
2: Well, again, it's one of those suggested lesson plans. Nobody requires it. Obviously, places teach it, and I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't. So, so it's out there, but this is what the antis have really focused on. And basically, 99% of it is a, a, an exercise in Preventing sex stereotyping. So it starts with, you know, should you, oh, somebody, so and so had a, a boy, should you send them a pink uh, congratulations card or a blue one? Well, here's why neither matters. Are there girl toys and boy toys? No. Are there girl jobs and boy jobs? No. And then it, it, the, the controversial language has to do with something like, you know, you might feel like even though you have girl parts, you feel like a boy vice versa, Uh, and this is driving people wild. This is just, even though it's not suggesting anything happen as a result of that, it's just acknowledging that some kids even as early as first grade have a sense either that maybe they're trans or they just don't at that point in life feel like identifying with whatever the stereotypes about their gender is. So it's not like it's, it's preaching, you know, everyone should transition or anyone (laughs) should transition. It's just acknowledging the questions that that kids have about their sexuality, but this is what's driven uh, a lot of the reaction. This is what they can really pull out. Um, And I have to say, so much of this has to do with the trans panic that we're seeing in so many in so many venues and it's it's really sad because it's making a difficult situation for many kids and families a lot worse
0: and there's an even darker side to this movement the suggestion that people who teach comprehensive sex ed could be groomers or even pro-pedophile, a term we never even heard before, you know, a year or two ago. Where is all this coming from?
2: Well, it's coming from a lot of places. I mean, the first time I saw it was Ron DeSantis' communications director uh, suggesting that anyone who uh, opposed their sick anti-sex ed bill might be a groomer or a pro-pedophile, and the only reason to to oppose such a bill would be that you want to make children willing victims of sexual abuse. And as I said before, this is a precise perversion an inversion of what's actually going on, where the, you know this curriculum is designed to help children say no. Um, then you know Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the QAnon crazy in Congress, picked it up. Other people have picked it up. Um, and it's become a real thing. It's become, you know, I didn't, I don't think I even knew what a groomer was, uh, yeah. except the one I take, you know, my Labradoodle to see <laughs> every six <laughs> weeks, you know, seriously. And it's like, oh, right, that was an old term, it's old term, mainly, you know, mainly applied to gay men. And it's so destructive. And we, you know, we're seeing an uptick in at least threats. So far, I'm not aware of any actual violence carried out against teachers, but we're seeing a lot of threats, and it's scary. And
0: how potent do you think this campaign against sex ed is working out to be for Republican candidates compared to the campaign against critical race theory last year?
2: Well, you know, you've got one of the big advocates of the critical race theory panic, the non-existent critical race theory, you know, that isn't taught in K-12. Christopher Rufo, this mediocre right-wing intellect who just gets a lot of wingnut welfare money, he was the, Mr. S- you know, anti-CRT panic. He switched over to sex ed and the grooming uh, BS Uh, And told the New York Times, it's because actually sexuality resonates even more with people than the fears of critical race theory. So when you're a grifter, you move on to your next grift. And so we're we're seeing some of the same people transition, so to speak, (laughs) this crusade. um, And it's really sick. You
0: report the research that shows students who get comprehensive sex ed are more likely to report sexual abuse if they experience it, that they become sexually active later, that they're more likely to use protection when they do become sexually active, that they're more likely to avoid pregnancy and STIs. I know that you talk to some of the grassroots activists in Worcester about these findings. What do they say in response?
2: They don't believe them. They don't, they don't believe, I mean, this is where, this is where we live now, John, right? We, you know, they have their own set of facts. So one of the people I talked to was like, oh, all those studies are by Planned Parenthood. Well, they're not. Some are. Um, some are by from the Guttmacher Institute, which used to be affiliated with Planned Parenthood. But many of them are independent, either by independent agencies or independent academic researchers. Uh, so they just say we don't believe it. We think, you know, fake news, all, you know, alternative facts. Uh, and, and that's, what's really dispiriting. It just feels like, I don't know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you might have a chance to push back on some of these arguments with, with science, but science doesn't matter. Science isn't science anymore to these people. Just like you have crazy climate denialism, you have crazy sex ed denialism and, and, uh, I don't know exactly how we combat it.
0: One more thing. There's a history to all of this, which you remind us of in your piece for the nation. The most fascinating part to me was about Reagan's surgeon general. The name will be familiar to our older listeners. C. Everett Koop.
2: C. Everett Koop was a very conservative uh, physician. He was Reagan's surgeon general, but when the AIDS crisis was really growing, uh, and Ronald Reagan was looking away from it for many years, C. Everett Koop came out in favor of the use of condoms and said, sure, we should teach abstinence, but we also have to teach the use of condoms if we want to save lives. And that was profound. But at the same time, I guess, going going back to 1986, uh, facts didn't matter either, because I thought as I was reading the history, well, maybe this leads to kind of meeting of the minds between the two sides, because there were there have been two sides since the 50s um, in terms of sex ed. It's been controversial and the right has just not, you know, not liked it. But, OK, if we can save lives, maybe we can compromise. We could teach both, because even today, a lot most comprehensive programs teach abstinence. Abstinence is the way to not get pregnant and not get STIs. It, it is pretty darn reliable. Um, But if you're not going to, and most kids are not going to, and young adults are not going to, here are other options. So yes, C. Everett Coop, conservative guy, had a funny beard, um, came out for condoms, but it didn't really move the needle.
0: Joan Walsh, her report, The Backlash Against Sex Ed, appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Joan, Thanks for this work and thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.